I, I actually don't believe you'll have a weather app, Randy. I'm calling BS on it. <laughs> Why is that? Because it'll be like it'll be like sixty degrees outside, and Randy will show up in like full multiple layer winter kit. That that or uh, they're calling for uh, another derecho to come through, and he's like, "Hey, you guys going riding?" Yeah. And, and Eric and I are too dumb to say no. Yeah, yeah. That's how we almost died on that one ride. Right. right. So we get out there, and he goes, "Man, I didn't think it was going to be this windy." <laughs> Welcome back to the Velo Chumps podcast. We have the whole crew with us this week. After last week, we had our uh, special episode with uh, Jason McKenzie. So we've been getting a lot of good reviews about that episode. So if you haven't heard it yet, I would definitely encourage you to go back and take a listen. Jason was not holding back, throwing dirt on the industry. It was pretty fun, right, Mike? Oh, yeah. Good times. It was uh, fantastic to hear uh, an insider's perspective. Yeah, but... You know, now this week we've got a regular episode for you. So you already got to hear Mike, but we also have Chad. How's it going, Chad? Hello. It's going great. It's fantastic. Awesome. We got Randy. Nice swanger back in the house. Hey, guys. Good to see you. All right. And Ryan. How you doing, Ryan? I'm doing good. Hope everyone had a good Monday. Yeah. So... What we're going to start off with, we are going to talk about the big, big thing in the bike industry that happened this week. SRAM came out with the new mountain bike group set. Now, what I want to remind everybody, the Velo Chumps, we are not a tech reviewer type of podcast here because we're just some regular chumps. And I'm going to guess, without having verified ahead of time, that none of you have been able to even see, let alone ride on, this new SRAM stuff. Has anyone anyone seen this stuff in the, in, in real life yet? I have not. Nope, I'm going to guess with none of us. Nope. We are not prominent yep. enough for SRAM to send us pre-release tech for us to ride it and then be able to give our opinion. That's not how this works here with the Bellow Chumps. But... That's okay, because hopefully by us covering it now, you've already read or listened to or seen YouTube videos or something, and you have all the details on what this thing is about. So we don't need to cover all the tech details, because hopefully, if you're into bikes at all, you've already heard about this, and you are you have some idea of what we're going to talk about. But what we're going to do is cover this from the chump's point of view and talk about what does this mean for us, what does it mean for the bike industry, and what does it mean for bikes in general going forward, because I think that there's some relevant discussion to be had there. The first thing that we'll talk about is the fact that, yes, this is the new and exciting mountain bike. I don't even know, Chad, I'm going to start off. Can we even call this a group set since it doesn't come with brakes? Uh, sure, I, I, I guess, because right, I think mountain bikers have mixed and matched stuff like this for a while. Um, but I mean, is it, we're not allowed to call it a drivetrain, right? I think their marketing department has said it is no longer a drivetrain, even though it doesn't include the brakes. It literally is the only thing that moves your bike, but it's what transmission, I guess. Cause it's, it's the transmission. 
It is, I guess. It's transmitting yeah. your power from your feet into the bike and propelling you forward. It's transmitting. All right. So maybe what we ought to do, Eric, is probably highlight what is it actually, right? It's still a mountain bike group set, right? As far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. It is still one by. So no front derailleur because SRAM has decided they are evil and bad. So mm-hmm. the only Correct. one cog on the crank, one, one chain ring on the crank. In the back, SRAM has had moved from 11 speed to 12 speed and this went to 13 no wait this i think is just still 12 speed right as, as i can tell they didn't they didn't still add 12 another, speed they didn't add another gear um it's it's electronic which is the first time ever because they have never no wait they've already done electronic so it's a lot like what they already have except apparently it's one by 12 it's fully electronic which they've already had i guess the Big thing here now is they have eliminated the classic mount style for the derailleur, so you can hit this group set with a hammer mercilessly. Because I was unaware of this, but that is a requirement of mountain biking. Apparently. Apparently that's what happens. I, I didn't know this because I don't mountain bike a lot compared to the some of the other people on this show. But maybe Mike and Ryan, our resident mountain bike uh, experts here, can you explain how often you have come across an obstacle out on a mountain bike course where a little guy just runs out with a hammer and just starts banging into your derailleur with it. That's not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> How many times has that happened to you, Ryan? Someone just darts out from behind a tree with a hammer and just starts banging it. Zero. Zero? Absolutely Mike. zero. How many, Mike, how, Mike, how many times have you laid your bike on the side, drive train up, and you needed to step on it to reach something on its high shelf, so you stepped on the derailleur to make sure that you could just get a few extra feet up and grab that thing off the top shelf? How many times have you done that? Zero. <laughs> Zero? Well, that's strange because all of this, the cool videos and stuff about this new drive, oh, I'm sorry, transmission are talking about... People, you can stand on the derailleur and it won't bend. You can hit it with a hammer and it'll work. So, I mean, that's disappointing to hear from you mountain bike guys that you're not getting, uh, you're not avoiding hammer blows and you're not standing on your derailleur very often. Because now I'm not really sure, Chad, what is the point of this new this new setup now? I mean, I'll let Green talk about it. It does have some great cool stuff. <laughs> it does. But it does. It is very cool. We'll talk about that, but I just think it's funny that so, so nobody seems out. to be standing on their derailleur. I thought after the Shreya marketing of this, I thought this was like a normal thing you did was you stood on your derailleur to get reach high stuff. I mean, that 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 is kind of mind-blowing. I mean, for those who haven't watched any of the YouTube clips of this, that's pretty much the first thing everyone has done with this is lay the bike down, jump on the rear derailleur, hit it with a hammer, We've been sticking uh, Allen wrenches and screwdrivers and everything in the rear derailleur pulley yep. because they've got a really cool breakaway. It's just like how badly can we abuse a group set? And all I'm thinking is for the audience, you know, these are like what? It comes in three price levels, but I think the top level just for these parts is like 2500 bucks to buy it. And I'm thinking any bike that has a $2,500 group set, right? We're, it's six, eight, ten thousand dollars $6,000, $10,000 bike. The last thing I'm going to do is lay my bike down and jump on it. I'm just, <laughs> it blows my mind. So, anyway. so, so Mike, what were you going to say? All I was going to say is, so yeah, and, and it's funny that you guys are talking about this because the one picture that just popped up on my computer is uh, a guy on the shoulders of another guy, and then the single guy in the bottom is actually standing on the derailleur. <laughs> so it, it is obviously for marketing, and they're explaining the strength of this whole thing. 
Um, but, and maybe Ryan can agree with me, uh, it's kind of funny. If you go to the mountain bike forums or the Facebook groups where people are talking about group sets, and this is long before transmission, mind you, it was not uncommon for me to see people pop in and say, oh, yeah, but, you know, what will happen when that uh, derailleur takes a, a rock strike? Oh, I'd be, I'd be afraid with my derailleur sticking out like that. I've had my derailleur destroyed, you know, mountain bike and this or that. So I've never had in my limited uh, Illinois mountain biking uh, a strike or anything happened to my derailleur, but it's apparently more common than maybe we expect. Ryan, would you agree it so- seems like that on the internet? Yeah, I think the other thing to remember is we live in Illinois where there's not a lot of technical terrain and we're not doing a lot of um, stuff that puts us at high risk of ripping off a derailleur. But um, I have ridden the majority of my mountain bike life single speed and I have ripped an XTR derailleur off of my mountain bike before and you buy a new one. And so, I mean, I certainly see a lot of appeal to this as frustrating and gimmicky as the marketing is. Um, there's a lot of things I wish for this group set, but I don't think it's all bad and hopefully it gets us to a happy place, but I mean, I don't think this group set, I don't think it's bad at all. I don't think bad is if if we're talking about the group set itself, I think it solves a lot of problems. I think it's actually a good group set in that regard. I, and, and again, you can go and read all of the tech reviews about this and all of the things about how, Having this, the, you know, one of the major things about having the derailleur direct mounted, it's not depending on a, what Chad would call paper mache piece of, I don't even know what, what these things are made out of, holding the derailleur there. And now you're trying to shift. And if it bends a little bit with the tolerances of these 12 speed drivetrains, that can cause the shifting quality to be, you know, less than ideal. And now with this direct mount, they're able to produce pretty good shifting from what I, I've, of course, I haven't rode this thing, but what I've been told is, what I've been told is it's as smooth as Shimano. So that is the, uh, what they're talking about is what SRAM has been able to accomplish by having a direct mount derailleur here. Yeah, I wasn't trying to, I do think it's a great group set and I do think it solves a lot of problems and I am overall excited about it. There's just some things that, I mean, we've talked about in the past that kind of frustrate me about it. Like, it, it eliminates the B screw high and low limit screw, which is amazing. Like, you know, I've been tweaking and setting up my drivetrain since switching my crux to two by, and it's been a little finicky and I think I finally figured it out, but to eliminate all that sounds amazing. But it's like the people now, buying these $10,000 bikes know how to tune their bikes. The people buying. But quickly, I do want to clarify the reason they're able to get rid of the B screw is because on all of the transmission drive trains, you are locked in, locked in, 100%. You can only run a 1052 cassette, period. That's how you get rid of the B screw because every cassette's exactly the same. No need for a B screw. So if you're trying, if they offered different size cassettes, they wouldn't be able to do this no B screw situation. Just let's just be clear about that. Well, the, the biggest cog anyway. The 52 certainly has to be 52, right? It couldn't... Yeah. Or it, maybe it can go to 50, but you're going to have a bigger gap. But anyway, because I, I think they... We were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, Green and I were before you guys all jumped on. So in the marketing material, they claim with this new standard that they have using the universal 
derailleur hanger dropout because i i think technically the universal derailleur hanger itself gets removed right that was the thing Correct. that marketed first to get everyone to adopt this dropout standard so then you bolt on um the shram rear derailleur and they claim like now we've got the one universal truth kind of let's say for where the upper jockey wheel needs to relocate itself in the rear end and that helps with alignment and tolerances and shift performance and all this because apparently we were living in a quagmire before where it was you know, the wild wild west and you could put that upper jockey wheel wherever you wanted except if i recall i mean yes we had a, a myriad of different derailleur hanger standards but i do believe if you look back at the tech docs for most of the derailleurs, they give kind of a reference point for where that 10 millimeter uh, bolt needs to be on a rear derailleur, kind of to the center line of the axle. So mm -hmm. we've never been able to move the hanger infinitely away or close. There's always been a zone of, let's say, tolerance that it's, it's needed to have. So it's not like it's been a total free for all. I'm with you. The, the B pulley adjustment has probably really come down to the fact that we've had different cassettes we've offered. The other thing, when they talk about the spacing and kind of the trueness to the axle or the, or the cassette, right? So now that we're hanging the derailleur off the end of the axle, it's now aligning itself to that lowest cog, right? The 10 cog, I assume it's 10, um, yep. to find its truth, let's say, in, in alignment in the system. But think about it. Prior to this, it I think all mountain bikes now are boost plus, right? I mean, I don't think there's an UDH bike that's probably running the old 142, right? They're all 148. So when road derailleurs were coming up, we had the 130 standard and then the 135 most recently right for disc. So we've had some of that going on. And I still believe SRAM with the software, I think you can still tweak it, right? For where, when that through axle is in, you may not be aligned underneath the 10 cog perfectly. So there's still micro adjustments in there. So I think you still have to do all the same adjustments you were doing before. But they, A, simplified the cassette standard, and B, just made the adjustments in the software now, right? You use now that that AXS, the Axis app, mm -hmm. whatever it is, to, to tune the derailleur. So I'd argue what they've really done is just take away a bent derailleur hanger, right? And we've had cheaper ways to fix that before. And and I've argued with you guys, I, I don't really love aluminum derailleur hangers. They're, they're kind of a new thing. Um, all my earlier composite bikes, which used carbon tubes and lugs that were made of aluminum in the back, I didn't have a separate derailleur hanger. It was part of the dropout. It was part of the casting in the back. And mm -hmm. Those were far more robust. I mean, we, we'd still bend them if you laid the bike down hard enough, but they were not nearly as paper mache fragile as the stuff on my newest bikes, right? The new Imondas, my new trucks. And I think you guys have experienced with your your specialized crux and whatnot, it's like, boy, it's like you, you catch a tall blade of grass and suddenly you're back in the garage trying to straighten a derailleur hanger. So maybe we just need to make a stiffer derailleur hanger. But anyway, I'll digress. Why but then how do you justify the purchase of... of your hag? So that was going to say the same thing. So I'm looking at the same website that Mike was talking about with the guy standing on his, uh, on his rear derailleur, and and I sit there and I wonder, and I and I and I think about the time Eric, you just recently ro you rode or took your bike out to Philly, and I wonder if that would have mitigated the need for your hag tool that you didn't have, and your rear derailleur kind of bent a little bit that yep. impacted your ride quality. So I sit there and I'm like, well, first of all, I look at this very two two dimensional because I'm not I'm not as technical as you guys. It looks pretty cool. I'm not gonna admit aesthetically, it looks pretty bad at. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um, but the other part of it is, is I think about that ride and say, does this help, you know, those frequent travelers with their bikes? Because let's face it, single track are not made equally all over the nation. So people travel up far distance for a good single track. 
does this allow them to mitigate some of the impact that travel has on their bike and the wear and tear that it may cause? I mean, absolutely. Um, to be clear, we're not talking about a, we don't have a universal derailleur hanger for road bikes. So yet anyway, so we're not talking about, it, it wouldn't be available, but the, it is a good solution. I believe to have the derailleur directly mounted to the frame and having the derailleur created in such a robust way that it's not going to be damaged and you don't, you effectively don't need the derailleur hanger to save the derailleur anymore. I mean, that's the whole point of the aluminum derailleur hanger is it saves the derailleur. So you end up with a situation where, yeah, you, you have a, you know, your derailleur's bent, but you're not buying a new whatever 250 or I don't who knows how much this thing is. It's, it's not cheap. You're not having a new expensive derailleur. You're buying a new, $10 derailleur hanger or just bending it back into place. So I understand the idea behind the derailleur hanger. I do think that this is a great solution. When you look at it from that perspective, it would allow travel. It would allow, you know, rock strikes. It would allow whatever, and you're still going to be okay. So I do see the benefit of these things. And I do agree that there are, it's a good advancement in, in certain ways. I guess for me, what I'm a little bit concerned about is what does this mean for bikes, for people like us. So let me ask you this. Mike, are you going to get this thing? Are you going to upgrade your Leadville bike to transmission? Uh, I'm not going to run out and do it. I don't have a need to. Uh, my concerns are, of course, uh, that expensive chain and um, the cassette as well. It sounds like both of those are more expensive than what's on the market right now for the existing group sets, which are the equivalent GX axis, uh, 12 speed. Um, mm -hmm. but you know, really those are the, the thoughts that go through my head is, you know, moving forward, um, looking down the line four or five years from now, um, what's, what's it going to be like to maintain this thing or to, you know, if, if you put a lot of miles on a bike and you got to replace your chain, is it always going to be a hundred dollars? Is it always mm -hmm. going to be five to $600 for a cassette when, um, you know, the access cassettes that Ryan and I just bought within the last six months are already in the $200 to $300 range. The, uh, SRAM road cassettes, the cheapest one I think is 130 bucks for the rival. So, you know, these things are already considered much higher than Shimano of, the 11 speed years yeah and and let's just make sure we get this out there for the listeners so a couple things just to mike's point this new transmission has a new chain okay allegedly SRAM says your normal um your existing eagle chain is not compatible with transmission the existing red flat top road chain we'll call it is not compatible with transmission they have their new transmission flat top transmission chain which again like mike said i think is 120 dollars for a chain the um i think it's the xx is the top end is that what the the it's xx good. is the top uh, end of this xx sl i think okay the xx sl the cassette for that just the cassette just the cassette 600 dollars. randy you've probably bought bikes that were less than 600 dollars <laughs> Actually, my road bike currently is less than that. <laughs> he, 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 bought a, he bought a $600 bike since we started recording, Eric. <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
So we're talking about a, oh, this is a wear part. This cassette will wear out. The chain will wear out. These things are wear, wear out parts. They're not forever. And they just, a new chain and cassette is over $700 for the, for the top end one of these. But perhaps the, the design, the metallurgy, the materials have so advanced, Eric, that this will last the lifetime of the bike you put it on. It, well, it won't. I'm going to call shenanigans on the chain compatibility, though, because, like, they've said for years you can't run, you know, Shimano trains on a SRAM drivetrain or vice versa, and I have, and it's worked just fine. So, like, I'm not saying I'm it not, won't work. I'm telling yeah. you what SRAM's official okay, corporate sure. line is. I think that's totally true in 11 speed. I think we've all mixed and matched for years because as SRAM came up through 10 and 11, what they kind of did was copy Shimano. Even when they've made all their own stuff, it's sort of been a copy of the Shimano standard. This era of mountain bike for them, the flat top chains and all that, I don't know how cross compatible they are. I've never tried to put a flat top chain on a 12 speed Shimano group, especially since Shimano, apparently when they went 12 speed, decided we could just use one chain for everything. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I think KMC. I guess I'm saying for, let's say you have a 12 speed, whatever, AXS, GX. I, I don't understand. And this is just my ignorance, but I can't imagine that it would not work with this new transmission drivetrain. Well, the thing is, is some of these chains, from what I understand, and maybe Chad can confirm, looking at a bike on the side from sideways or, or the chain, the the distance between the rollers or the rollers diameter themselves is different. So now you're talking about the the size of the teeth or the the dips between each teeth on your cassette could change. And I don't think it's because I've been following a lot of this stuff when people are mixing and matching SRAM and Shimano and not using the flat top chain. It's not so much Ryan that it doesn't work because a lot of guys have it working pretty mm -hmm. well. And they're even using the 12 speed DI two cassette on a SRAM drivetrain. I think the biggest concern is instead of getting 5,000 miles out of a, out of a chain or 8,000 miles out of a cassette is you might get that earlier wear and tear and everything seemed like it was great, but you only get 2,000 miles out of it. So is that, you know, are you really gaining anything by, by trying to go cheap on your chain? Yeah, I, yeah, think, I think you hit on the head green. I, I, I think that's the point, right? In 11 speed, we can mix and match some of the stuff, even campy, right? The tolerances were pretty close to the same. I think the chain pins were pretty darn close. To the same so you could make that work pretty well but but ryan i think the other part of transmission here is and i haven't seen the roller diameters but i believe a big part of transmission is for e-bikes so i would imagine when you're making a baby motorcycle this chain is probably pretty heavy duty and for a lightweight road bike it might be compromised in other ways especially if you're not going to run that wide ratio 10 to 52 set so there there probably is a reason why this chain yet a third SRAM 12-speed iteration chain exists is probably something to do with the e-bike, not necessarily you and I riding our XC bikes wherever we are. Yeah, and you know, uh, right before you chime in, Ryan, because I know you, I think you had one more thing to say, uh, one slightly interesting thing about this cassette is that it's a narrow wide. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if Randy's aware, but I'll share for the audience or listening audience. But the, those, how those, well, because I always, I always viewed narrow wide as something else, and I, I assume the rest of you guys were clear on it. But the thickness of the teeth, that wasn't actually supposed to be an insult on Randy. Anyways, those, they have narrow wide teeth on the cassette now. They've never had that before. They were always the same size teeth all the way around. So 
um, you know, it's it, that was kind of another indicator to me, like, oh, they are messing with everything in the system. They're not just mess. They didn't just change um, just the chain to do something with the front chain ring. Like the whole thing is, you know, mm-hmm. they're trying to mess with it. So that, that actually, you know, maybe it makes for a, a nicer, smoother running shifts and you know you're, you're not having mischiefs and you won't have a, a ghost shift while you're pedaling under power when it's bouncing around a lot but it doesn't really lend itself well to start mixing and matching the chains in my head i heard another like to chad's point about the e-bike that you can be doing like you know 1900 watts on an e-bike doing 40 miles an hour and shift under this thing flawlessly mm-hmm. so um the, I was going to kind of tailor the topic a little bit, but one of the things I was going to say is I think my optimism stops here, but one of the things that makes me most excited about this project is that the bike industry actually kind of worked together to make this happen. And I hope that that continues. Chad, you're looking at me cross-eyed, but so like for the last however many years, SRAM had to work with all these different bike manufacturers to get them to adopt this UDH, which might seem like a small undertaking, but historically in the bike industry, I don't think had you told somebody that they were going to make that happen, I think everyone would have called BS. And the fact that it actually happened. Well, I don't know. Here's before Chad, before you jump in, Chad, this is my point. I will say, SRAM has innovated and to an extent dominated the mountain bike market for quite some time now, and they were able to push the re- the, the the manufacturers to say, "Hey, if you want to sell bikes with our stuff on it, we're going to use this UDH." And SRAM had enough, you know, influence on the mountain bike side to make that work. If they turn around and try to do that on the roadside, it's probably not, they're not going to have the same level of influence to say, yeah, we're going to, you know, you need to build your bikes to our standard. So I think that there is something to be said for the fact that they were pushing a lot into the mountain bike space for quite some amount of years now. So I don't know if it's necessarily the bike industry working together as it was the bike manufacturers saying, hey, we need to be able to sell OEM with SRAM on it because. That's where that's what people want in the mountain bike industry and on the on the mountain bike side. I mean, go ahead, Chad. Yeah, fire away. I have not researched UDH enough to know is it is it patented, and if so, even yes or no doesn't really matter. But is it a like a freely licensable standard? So has SRAM kind of said, you know what, these hangers, these axles, it's fine. We designed it. We don't care. Everybody else can adopt it. And is everybody else yeah. allowed to make a derailleur? that works kind of the way it bolts in the parallelogram. Like, so if Shimano makes a derailleur hanger free UDH XTR XT, whatever that goes on the back of a mountain bike is SRAM going to go smack them with a lawsuit saying, Nope, you designed a derailleur that looks a little bit too much like ours. You can't do that. You have to go stick with well, hanger. Of course they will, uh, fight each other. Right. I mean, I think this is not a, uh, that would not be unexpected, but, uh, Shimano has already submitted patents prior to this transmission coming out for direct mount derailleur hangers for mountain bikes. So this is not necessarily a, you know, it, it, Shimano will, will respond to this one way or the other, however that is. But again, SRAM is fairly dominant in the mountain bike space anyway, right? So not that nobody uses Shimano, 
just like not that nobody uses SRAM on the road, but SRAM does have the influence on the mountain bike side. And the UDH is just that, Chad. You can put any derailleur on a UDH. It's really a frame level um, standard. standard, we'll call it. So that's the hanger. That's the standard that hanger that goes on that frame. So that way, SRAM knows exactly where the where the dropout is going to be, we'll call it. They, they know the position. So when you direct mount this thing, it's going to be in the position they expect it to be in. But, of course, it'll be in the position that Shimano can expect it to be as well, right? Hopefully. I just I don't want to see us go down a path where these mountain bike brands support SRAM, and if you want Shimano, you're going to have to go buy this other mountain bike brand, right? I mean, because we're already to the point now, if you want transmission, you basically have to go buy a new bike. Because oh, unless you bought your bike in the last three years, you're not going to have UDH on the back of your mountain bike. Correct. And and that's sure. partly what I was going to say, Ryan. I don't even know if your bike is UDH um, compliant at the moment. So I don't even know if you're – I think, Mike, you said yours is. But I don't know, Ryan, if your mountain bike is able to be upgraded to transmission. Yeah, mine aren't because mine have sliding dropouts because of the single speed thing. Um, but to Chad's – I, I echo Chad's concern because, man, I don't want to see a bike industry that, like, part of the fun for people like us that like to build our bikes and mix and match stuff is, you know, that kind of universal aspect of it. But um, the UDH is separate. Like like Eric said, it's a frame thing. So as if you have a UDH, you can connect whatever derailleur you want. So I don't think we're going to see the this brand supports this drivetrain system. I, I, I think that's kind of a concern that isn't actually, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but that's not actually a concern that's coming to fruition because the UDH serves both. Or, yeah, I mean, so on that website too, Universal Derailleur Hanger, you apply for a free license, you label your bike with it, you can build your bike. So anybody can do this. And I guess that's what we were talking about earlier, Chad, is there was that was one of my concerns is I would hate to find out that I couldn't put on the latest XTR 12 speed on something if I wanted to go back to that. If there was some kind of appeal to going with the Shimano drivetrain, maybe it's the fact that it's going to be a fraction of the cost. But it looks like once you put a regular UDH derailleur hanger on one of these uh, bikes that fits on the frame, then... You can put whatever derailleur you want on it if you want to go back to a nine or ten speed or whatever. Well, yeah, I mean the current bikes you can you could take this thing off if you had transmission, put the UDH on it, and then run whatever drivetrain you want. Yeah, yeah. To Mike's point. Right, but if you take out the little bit that's the UDH hanger, right, and so you've got let's call it I don't know is there a name for it the UDH dropout without the hanger, right? That's yep. How yep. How transmission works is it you pop that little Correct. piece out, the transmission derailleur system now basically kind of becomes the through axle threading part, right? It's always on the bike. Yep. You take the through axle in and out, and you actually use the through axle, I think, to kind of reset points of this derailleur if you get in a crash or, or what have you. Now, if you have to, in order to get to use this on your bike, if you have to, like, a petition to SRAM in order to get that free license, it's exactly the same thing Shimano did when they came out with MicroSpline. And you know what they did then? You applied to go ahead and be allowed to use that free hub body, and they drug their feet as long as they want because the number of people who had white industry hubs for the longest time couldn't get 
a white industry hub body that finally white industry just had to make their own hub body, I believe is what they did. They went around microspline. They went around the patent so you could actually run their hubs on the new Shimano 12 speed. So there's nothing, there's nothing that says that's what I'm getting at is like, is SRAM actually then in control of the whole standard and everyone's going to have to be beholden to SRAM? Because if I were them and new bikes come out and Shimano comes out with their own new standard, I'll just say, great, I just won't let you have the license for 12 months or something, right? So I can still get even more of a competitive advantage. Yeah, so. I'm sure there's going to be – and again, so this let, – let me tell you this. This is, goes to my point. This is going to go to where the bike industry, the bike brands, the business side of things where they're trying to ensure the profitability for their company, for their shareholders or whoever – might not always line up with what's best for us, the riders. And that's something that I think maybe you're trying to get at, Chad. And I will definitely always make that point because I'm. it frustrates me when you have business, the business side of things in the short term might be good for that brand, but it's not good for cycling in the long term. But let me bring up this point right here. So what I understand, again, I haven't rode on this thing, but what I understand is there are so many benefits of this that it will likely become the new thing right where you have this robust derailleur you have the ability to shift under power you have better shifting in general you have all kinds of benefits right apparently it's a very 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 good group set it's a very very good shifting experience riding experience all of those things right the thing that bothers me is that SRAM has said this is their first drivetrain or whatever you want to call it, transmission, whatever, that was 100% built with electronic in mind. So if you think about red axis even was sort of like an extension of red 22, right? So you, it was always like, hey, we're taking a mechanical system and making it electronic, but this was built from the ground up purely as what are we doing with an electronic group set? So what worries me about that or what makes me concerned about that and I'd like to hear your guys' take on that. Does that mean that in the future, performance bikes or bikes that have performance features will be strictly electronic? Is that where we're going? Yes. <laughs> That's so I mean, pessimistic. No, not well, that I'm. I mean, about, I, I, what about I want options. That's a thirteen. I mean, that's a thirteen speed. I would say that that's. Future, you know, if you're looking future facing, ECAR is a 13 speed mechanical grupo, right? I mean, so some people would consider that a high end group set. Well, right now, every there are definitely high end mechanical group sets right now. But what I'm saying is the advancement in group sets, it's like they're moving towards electronic as a an advancement. Now, I know, Randy, you said on one of the previous episodes that. You, you particularly enjoy electronic shifting, and you wouldn't go back to mechanical shifting, which is fine. Of course, I have two bikes that are electronic shifting right now. I love it for certain applications. But would we want to be in a world, or even you, Randy, would you want to be in a world where if you want to get a frame, if you want to get a bike that is a performance bike, and now we're talking about not even just what you buy OEM, but the frame itself is going to be electronic only. So if you're going to get any type of performance bike, it's electronic only. I mean, is that what we want to limit ourselves to? Well, I'll, I'll take it from the reverse perspective. I bought that LA, you know, guys, I love the LA, but I have that LA yep. right hook, right? And it, the thing that bothered me is it 
that that purchase for that frame set, if I wanted electronic, I only had one option. I could only go SRAM because I wanted to go with a, an electronic group mm -hmm. and I wanted to really build it up. If I were to really think about it, I would rather put a Dura-Ace build onto that, but I wanted electronic shift. And so again, I think that was a limiting variable to me. So I think in the future, if you really have a, a cool bike that you want to get a vintage feel for it, you're only going to be in a finite period of time that you can use as a vintage reference point if you want to make it mechanical. So I love Dura-Ace 9000. Now, granted, they do have a DI2. I love the look of it, you know, but some of these frames that are going to be or electronic shift only, you wouldn't be able to put a nice vintage looking Dura Ace 9000 build on it if it was a mechanical group set, right? So I think. Or, or vintage feel, not even vintage, just feeling of having. Some people prefer mechanical shifting. I mean, I sent you guys that uh, video I found today of uh, Chad's long lost brother that was complaining, bemoaning the fact that uh, the pinnacle of shifting Dur Ace 9100 was discontinued for in, in favor of only electronic. I mean, I can't believe this guy, Chad. It was amazing. I, I think I thought you produced, Shadow produced that video. I, I must have actually had work to do at work today, so I didn't, <laughs> didn't get to watch that yet. Now I'm like, I'm going to have to go back through our chat and go find that one, but I could, I could, <laughs> I could sympathize with it. But, you know, but, you know buying Dur Ace mechanical, buying Dur Ace DI2, you know, that's a different... That's a different level of the market, right? That we're in buying those kind of things. When I mm -hmm. see like rival only being electronic, when I see 105 only being electronic, yep. I'm I'm angered at the entry level bike point because I got to be honest with you, I am not going to convince someone who is casually thinking about riding to go spend the MSRP it is to get a, a DI2 105 bike flat out. I'm going to tell mm -hmm. you, I mean, what are they now? Five, six grand for that level of bike, and if this oh is, easy. That, that is not going to be someone's first road bike, period, right? It's going So then you're like, well, Chad, they'll just wait a couple of years and they can go buy it used. I'm like, really? Because we're at a point right now where if you have 11-speed DI2, you're probably only a couple of years away from wrecking that bike, and it's done. You're going to be on mm -hmm. eBay hunting down the shifters for it, just like anyone who's got 10-speed DI2, if you remember that. that that's been a while. Mm -hmm. You could have had that bike, great. Go hunt down one of those shifters. Go hunt down that derailleur. And, hey, if you've got... SRAM's original 11-speed ETAP, good luck if you torque the front derailleur because SRAM is lucky enough that you can firmware update, I think, the shifters. I think they still sell an A2 version of the ETAP 11-speed rear derailleur, which is kind of, I think, a rebranded version of the Axis in some ways. But they don't sell you the front derailleur. I've looked at that, right? Because I've I got a Richie and I'd like to upgrade it and it can't go DI2. And there's there's the crux, right? It's I don't want to have to buy a whole new ecosystem for cassettes for that either. So there's, there's a problem with that. So where I get kind of grumpy about it is where am I going to go tell someone to go find, you know, $3,500, $3,000 for your first road bike. If you're really getting into this hobby, that is, you may call it mid-level. You may call it entry level. You may call it cheap. That's a lot of money. And you, I, or even for mountain bikes. I mean, that's what bothers me, whether it's mountain bikes. Now, if mountain bikes, if mountain bikes all adopt this, what we're calling transmission standard, right? That means it's going to be electronic because SRAM strictly said it's designed as an electronic group set, right? So basically what you're going to create is this stratification. You're going to have bikes that have a performance level of the, of, you know, they have the performance features, whether it's road or whether it's mountain bike, whether it's gravel, they have the performance features that are going to cost minimum of, you know, six grand going forward 
or you're going to have the mechanical bikes, which is going to be who the hell knows on the SRAM side, and it's going to be Qs on the Shimano side. The bike's going to maybe cost, you know, $1,500 to $2,000, but it's not going to have any performance features. You're talking about your very, very basic bottom level, what we would call today entry level. And there's not going to be this, you're not going to be able to upgrade that frame to a nicer, you know, components. You're not going to be able to have anything in the middle. It's like, okay, I got this entry level frame and I basically, I want to now get a performance bike. I basically have to get rid of this thing and spend six, seven grand to get a bike with performance features. I'm not sure that is the bike future that I would want to live in. I guess that's where we're at now. Now, hopefully with the universal derailleur hanger itself, right, that goes in, that GX and these other lower groups and Dior and whatever not, Qs, can all kind of live on on these bikes and maybe give us that upgrade path and hopefully road adopts something similar in the future. I just don't want to get to this point either, Eric. And I haven't seen the Qs out long enough. Um, you know, 11 speeds has worked for me on a lot of things. Maybe I can upgrade the wife's Dutch cargo bike to Qs or something in the future so I can stockpile <laughs> one less chain in the parts bin, but... You know, we'll see. That's that's my grumpy part right there. I'll just point out the irony is that we were complaining about all of these bikes requiring uh, the shops to help out the consumers and spend so much labor on all these bikes. And now here SRAM comes out and with something that is way easier to set up and could be maintained and tuned at home by almost anybody with zero experience with derailers. But obviously it's, there's a, a big difference between those two things but it's still kind of funny yeah but i mean mike anyone that's gonna buy this thing they're already able to maintain and tune derailleurs because you know what how much is the cheapest one just for the 99 i think yes you're talking about 1600 dollars just for a cassette a chain and it and uh crank and a derailleur i mean this is, and, and I'm sorry, those little pod shifters, right? That you, you put up on your, right? So, right. I mean. Match brakes. The match brakes that came out with it, what, same day or the day later, how they're now allowing you to integrate the hydraulic line into mm -hmm. your cars and through your headset. I mean, so now we can get back to being grumpy about integrated something that causes mm -hmm. it. <laughs> I was just going to ask you guys, are there any takeaways from this to build the ultimate dream road bike drivetrain. I mean, is there anything positive that can come from this? Is there anything that SRAM is going to take and adopt to the next gen 12 or 13 speed road setup? Well, I mean, they can't do the same thing they did because road bikes don't have the same standard yet. We haven't created this standard dropout, we'll call it, because no company has created that level of you know, or has that level of put pull on the roadside to just say, hey, this is how frames need to be made. But I think everybody is going to see the benefit of not having a derailleur hanger and having that robust derailleur back there. I think, again, there are benefits to that. So are are is the roadside going to go that direction to say we can get a direct mount derailleur and it's going to be able to have all of these benefits we're talking about? Now, I can tell you for a fact, if... I'm riding my road bike down the road and a little guy runs out and tries to hit me with a hammer. I'm just going to outrun him. So I don't need to worry about, you know, hammer strikes on the side of my derailleur. But of course, there's definitely benefits. And this definitely seems like it is the I mean, just the same thing we were talking about earlier about without having the derailleur hanger, 
you can shift under load. So, I mean, if you're talking about in a sprint where you really are putting down massive watts and you just want to hold the hold the button down and go down the cassette into harder gears, you're not going to have a problem. So there are definitely benefits to this on the roadside, but we're not in a position where we can create the, have the same type of technology go in on the roadside at the moment. Yeah, and I I wouldn't I wasn't even necessarily referring to like the, the next 6 months, but is someone somewhere thinking, yeah, we should we should try to go down that path of eliminating that derailleur hanger going with something that's so robust or you know, even yeah, you're not going to have rock strikes, but are there other benefits? But, you know, that the one thing that you guys mentioned that I hadn't even thought of is uh, which is so funny to me is the, if everybody's going with the same exact cassette, then yeah, who cares about the B screw? Mm-hmm. Um, but then if you come out, you know, would, would somebody standardize cassette sizes and derailers and say, oh yeah, you want the 1036, then you're, you're going to need this one. Oh, you want the 1033, you're going to have to step down to this one. So, well, I think that a- obviously, I personally think that if they come out with a direct mount derailleur for road, there will be an equivalent of the B screw to move that jockey where it needs to be, right? I, I, I just think that that's going to be the case, whether it's SRAM or Shimano or whoever. But I definitely see this affecting road bikes. I definitely see this going down that path. But I guess what I'm trying to say is, what that tells me is we have a really good technology that SRAM came up with. It really does. There's really good ideas behind this thing. It's going to have, it's going to create a really good shifting and bike riding experience for the people that are on this thing but as this does translate down to the roadside gravel side whatever does that mean we're going to end up with any kind of bike you want that has any kind of decent drivetrain has to be electronic is that where we're ending up and now and then uh, does that mean that a, a nice a reasonable performance bicycle at minimum is going to be six thousand dollars is that what we're talking about here that's what that's the thing that worries me the most about this that the, what i've seen in the last week since this transmission came out is i'm just envisioning a world where you're spending six grand to get a bike with any kind of performance features i think you don't have to envision it i think we're there yeah no but i would disagree because i can buy a frame set a, a very you know good performance frame set for in the neighborhood of two grand, and I can build it up with eleven speed mechanical that I find on eBay, and I can have a very very high performing bike for what under three grand. It's possible but to do. Devil's advocate, you know? you so you you have the knowledge to do that though. The Velo Chump listener that we're trying to gear ourselves to like they don't know to go like these these drivetrains are no longer commercially available and so you can't unless you're hunting and we know chad hunts for dura ace spare sets you're not going to be able to find like 11 speed ultegra just like going on competitive cyclists or jensen or whatever but in the future even if you know how to do all that stuff the frames themselves, the bikes themselves will require electronic shifting and you won't even have the uh, option, even someone like Chad, even someone like me that can, you know, 
like take Chad that could piece together a bike with multiple different, you know, mix of Shimano, SRAM. He could do all these crazy things. He won't even have the ability to do that because the frame won't allow it. Eric, I think I think uh, electronic is in the future for all of this stuff. And not necessarily because it's better, even though I enjoy mine. I think that they're going to shove it down our throats and they're going to be saying this is the way this is the you know the path forward so but to my earlier point that's what i was saying is people that buy these ten thousand dollar bikes know how to tune their stuff so like what what the beauty of this eliminating the high low limit b screw should be is those entry-level bikes that people don't know how to tune like put it on there and it's set it and forget it and let these people ride their bike down to get ice cream with their kids and never have to tune their derailleur ever yeah, I agree. That would be a good thing. And we might get there one day in 10, 15 years. But then again, everybody is going to be on electronic bikes, which is fine. Again, Mike, I like my, I like my electronic stuff. I mean, I don't have anything against electronic. In some ways, it is better. I mean, my favorite thing about my SL7 is I haven't tuned it in years. It just stays in tune, right? It's great. I guess my point is... Are we going to be in a situation where we're making riding bikes even more exclusive and more difficult to get into than we already are today? Which seems difficult to do because it's already hard as hell to get into cycling and, and stick with it. And we're just going to make it that much more inaccessible that you do get someone that gets on a bike from Walmart or whatever. And they, they just happen to like it. And they're like, you know what? I want to get something better. Oh, but the next thing I need to get a $6,000 bike because that's what any kind of performance, any bike that's better than what you're buying at Walmart is going to be $6,000. Is that what we're talking well, about? That's, that's what bothers You know, Eric, it's a good point. I mean, I think that's the debate and I think that's kind of where we keep circling back on. But I think the other part is, is that the reason why the industry has evolved for to what it is today is because you have consumerism driving electronic shifting. The high-end bike is, you know, the enthusiasts are really going towards that new novelty, that new field of electronic shifting. And you hear it all the time. You hear those adopters and the people that switch over from mechanical to electronic saying how wonderful it is. And they'll never go back to mechanical. But I think once we see a market void occur, to your point, someone going to Walmart, buying a bike, and the next step up is a 6000 someone's going to fill that void in there and someone's going to come out with a with a mid-range bike, whether it's electronic or it's going to be a, maybe someone reintroduces the mechanical shift as the new revolutionary, you know, way maybe shifting bikes, you know, so it may come full circle. As they say, time repeats itself. Who, who knew some of the brands we wear today, you know, these kids wear today are the brands we grew up on that. Yeah, don't tell me about that, man. <laughs> I think maybe if SRAM and Shimano fully adapt electronic, which they clearly are, you're going to see some of these, um, you know, like micro shift or what's the other one, like Advent or whatever. I think you're going to see maybe some of these, yeah, some of these other companies that haven't really broken into the mainstream drivetrain business maybe make a name for themselves. Hopefully, please. Thank you. Like, we also but, haven't again use yet either right isn't that on the horizon so maybe yes but I, I, my point is about all of that that's fine if you have the drivetrain makers putting together whether it's you know outside of the big three which i actually think the new campy is not even going to be 
they're not going to have a mechanical super record, I believe. So even they are going off of that, uh, you know, <laughs> off of the uh, mechanical train. But even if TRP and Microshift and these other brands come out with mechanical drivetrains, the bike that itself is going to be electronic only. That's the part that's the problem. So anything that is going to be a, what I would call a performance mountain bike in the future is going to be electronic only because it's going to be made for this um, transmission and they're going to set it up where it, you basically have to run it electronic. So that's going to be, if you want a performance mountain bike, if you want something that's better than the cheapo mountain bike you can get, you're going to end up with, even if you buy that TRP and or Microshift or whatever drivetrain, you can't install it on your performance frame because it's going to be electronic only. That's the part that's that's bothersome. Well, that's my, like, I've been a fan of, like, my mountain bikes are like a boutique brand no one's ever heard of. I, plus one for the small guy. I mean, I agree. I think Giant Trek Specialized, their, you know, their frames are going to be electronic compatible only, but... This is a shot to maybe some of these smaller boutique brands maybe making a name for themselves and sticking to their guns is my hope. Or just like with the BSA threaded bottom bracket, there will be a market resurgence and we will all return to yes. and rim brake. Okay, maybe that's a push too far. But yes, maybe maybe consumer push will finally say, look, DI2, electronic, access, whatever. It can't be EPA. It's not going away. Let's let's be honest. right. Agreed. Ride it. That's going to stay here forever. Top tier mountain bike is going to stay here forever. But I, I yeah, you got to hope at some point the consumer, right, who really drives the cash register at the bike shop. When we come out of what this funk we're in right now, maybe consumerism will say, you know what, Man. let's have some mechanical shift affordable bikes. Chad, out there. I love that. I love that analogy to go back to the threaded bottom bracket because for years we were in this pit of despair of these press fit bottom brackets have all of these advantages and we just need to put them on every bike cannondale but anyway it was such a great you know like great sounding marketed idea and then finally the consumer said no let us thread the damn bottom bracket back into the frame and look where we are today so chad i appreciate you bringing this back into a good place to to finish this off man that's fantastic <laughs> I mean, Chad. Chad does want to go back to four barrel carburetors too. So just be clear. And rib brakes. Let's be clear. True, I will admit it. All right, Mike Green, what do you got for us this week? We need a factoid. Uh, I don't have a factoid this week. I've got a uh, a little bit of a pro tip. Oh. Oh. Okay. Sure. Pro tip. All right. Does it involve triathletes? Well, uh. One I'm comes nervous. to mind, yeah. <laughs> okay, so, all right. Let's see what uh, you got. You know, spring springtime is rolling around, so people are doing garage sales, or as you may know them as yard sales. But uh, yard sale can mean uh, something else in a, in a different context, and that is, um, <laughs> it's an approach to uh, changing a, a flat tire. So, the yard sale approach is what I'm proposing here, and that is. When you get a flat, you pull over to the side of the road, take off your wheel, and you take your saddlebag or whatever it has, all your tools, and you take everything out and you lay it out in like a 10 foot by 10 foot square area. 
and you want to, you know, it's almost haphazard, but there's a method to the madness. It's, it's so you can see where everything is. You can see your inner tube. You can see your, your patch kit, your inflator, your uh, tire levers, your tool. And, uh, but, you know, before you even get to work, you want to take a picture of that and post it online. <laughs> So, you know, it, it might it might scream that you're in distress, but in reality, there's, you know, you have got everything under control and everything's good. You're getting ready to repair your flat tire and get underway. Wow. Are, are you taking the photo because after you get home at the end of the ride, you'll realize you have left the wrench in some dude's or gal's <laughs> front yard yep. and you need to go back to find it? It could be that. It could be that. Take the picture taken out of it. I've seen Randy do that on more than one occasion. <laughs> methodical yeah methodical right it, that's yep. the whole point it's methodical because you're not saying oh where's that where's my multi-tool where's my patch kit where's the uh the tire levers yeah well just spread that spread that crap out i will say that i've definitely experienced the most number of flat tires with you so I've never seen you do this. I've never seen you do this. So I'm actually kind of surprised. Is this going to be the new the new method for when we get flats in the you know when you get flats in the future? Well, that's the whole point. Is I'm not very efficient at changing flats, so this will be the new approach. Okay, because I just want to point out to people the one time we went out on a gravel ride, and. I did not have tubeless tires. I actually was running a gravel bike with tubes at the time. I had not yet switched over my the, the, my wheels to tubeless wheels. Mike, on the other hand, had the tubeless wheels, tubeless tires, tubeless setup, and he was the one with multiple flats on that ride, not me, that I think at the end, I don't even know if we finished the ride because that your your plug didn't work out or something. We, we did finish the ride, barely. Uh, <laughs> but what I'll say is, um, you know... You know, Chad doesn't give out great advice often, but he did <laughs> give some that time. And, and that is, uh, you know, I, I can't remember the, the um, milliliters or ounces that they suggest to put in, uh, let's say, a 40 mil gravel tire. But you put in, you know, if there's a range that they say uh, two ounces to four ounces for a 40 mil gravel tire, just put in the four. And I think what I did on that time, I went... If it said two, I went like 1.99 and, you know, I, I had always gone the minimum and that, you know, it, it bit us on the butt that day. So mm -hmm. it, it was actually Eric on the, the climb out in, uh, out in the driftless region yep. where it had looked like, you know, 12 inch to 16 inch softball sides boulders yep. and it was large really gravels. Yep. <laughs> we really should have been on uh, fat bikes to climb that part. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. To this day, I think I think Chad was like punking us. Like I, we would have got to the top of it and freaking uh, what's his name pop out. You you've been punked. You know? <laughs> Ashton it was, Kutcher. It was the most. Yeah, fucking Ashton Kutcher. Oops, sorry. <laughs> but, I swear, I was expecting something like that to happen at the top. And the whole time up, we uh, MF Chad. So it was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, my, my tire sealant method is, you know, I hear people talk about sealant drying up and they don't have enough sealant in their tires. I don't know why there's numbers on the side of the syringe. I think you just fill the whole thing. There you go. Syringe. Exactly. Fill the syringe. It's one it syringe in. per tire. There you go. It lasts you all season. It's great. I like it. I like that. That's a good method. Yeah. 
I'm a fan. I did want to tell a story briefly because it happened this week. This is a very cool story. I was checking Strava because, you know, as fellow chumps, that's what we do, check our Strava. And I'm scrolling through, and here's Randy Nicewanger, and he's got the little crown uh, icon on his right. I'm like, hey, cool, Randy picked up a crown. So I go in and look, and... Now, to set the context, earlier that day, Chad, now, even though Chad doesn't live near us, similar situation, Chad had to stop his ride early, because why did you have to stop your ride early, Chad? <laughs> because I went out before a thunderstorm warning, thinking I could beat the storm. Yep. And it basically was 60-mile-an-hour shear wind that came through, almost like microbursts, like a tornado. And so I took shelter behind um, a barn at a local rec center, kind of at the soccer fields, kind of wanting to wait it out, but... My wife called me, which never happens, asking if I wanted a ride. Wow, wow. It was so bad. Even my spouse was like, if you're dumb enough to go out in it, you're going to ride home in it. was like, she took Mm -hmm. pity on me like, "Ah, I think you should come home. So, yeah, it was bad weather. That was a bad, bad call. And I think think you did something similar, right, Randy? You got a ride home? You told us you abandoned your ride due to weather? Yeah, and I specifically told her to go down these KOM routes so that i could take them all yeah Uh, i I told her to slow down to make it believable but well it uh, didn't work because the last three koms the last three segments were all crowns i'm like wow he he finished his ride strong and then i noticed they were all plus 40 something miles an hour i'm like wow this dude he was really putting down the what so i was like no 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 wait he told me he came home so the best part about it was I knew that you had bailed on your ride. I knew that you got a ride in the car. And then I checked one of the segments, and it was one of the segments that Green had created. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Randy stole Green's segment in a car. <laughs> I subsequently deleted the whole ride like it never happened. <laughs> so anyway, I thought that was an amusing story. I, I, I found it I funny. So. The story, but the the irony it never fails, Chad, and I don't know if this happened to you. As soon as I pulled into my driveway, here comes the sun, you know, just like oh. that song, you know. Like, yeah. As soon as my wife pulled up in the minivan, like to load the bike, the sun popped out, and she's, uh, <laughs> and she's like, "Maybe I should have just let you ride home." I'm like, "Nope, no, nope, I'm gonna go with that." Was a yep. sign that I needed the ride home that day. So. We hope you enjoyed the show tonight. We would encourage you to leave us a rating and a review. It's going to help the podcast grow. We would like for you to share this with your friends if you like what you're hearing. But until then, see you next week. Hey, have you even been listening to what I've been saying? I've been talking to you for the last 10 minutes.